All right, so just to review a little bit. We discussed this morning, first of all, what was the purpose of the sacrificial system. And that whole first page of quotes um, reveals the ideal, which is what does God really want? He wants the law written on us on the heart. All right? Uh, he desires mercy. He desires kindness. And the false picture that Satan has tried to run in parallel with this, with the true meaning of the sanctuary system, is um, a fearful God uh, who needs to be appeased. That is the picture of idolatry all the way through the Bible. And so uh, on the second page there, we uh, reviewed, just like at the cross and so many things, God shows us the ideal. Okay, Jesus, his life, his death, we see the perfect reflection of the character of God, the principle of his kingdom. And at the same time, we see the greatest uh, malignant nature of sin, the horrible consequences of sin and rebellion. We see the character of Satan exposed. Same thing with the sacrificial system. Um, we see the horrible consequences of sin. It was to remind the people of their sins. And we talked about Adam killing that first lamb. Uh, had to have been a brutal, disgusting experience, and that was the whole point. And then, even in the Old Testament time, they would certainly have the idea as they think through what is going on with the killing of the lamb and with this blood that is moving from one compartment to the next, uh, that there is a remedy to this problem. Okay, We see that remedy clearly as uh, we look at the cross and then look back on this whole system. But the remedy is meant to bring us to reconciliation, at-one-ment with God. It is meant to be healing. All right, and then we discussed what is the temple. Well, there are physical temples. There are uh, spiritual temples. Jesus said, uh, tear down this temple and I'll build it up again in three days. But the temple he was speaking about was his body. And then I think the next few verses there are just so critical as we understand what is the temple, what temple needs to be cleansed. And we read in 1 Peter 3, we are living stones in this temple, built upon the cornerstone. We are pillars in the temple. And we added three times uh, that in Revelation, we are priests in this temple. Okay, again, we're reminded that we are stones built upon the foundation, the cornerstone in this temple. And then just plainly, uh, Paul writes several times, you are God's temple. You yourself are his temple. And this refers to uh, much more uh, than our diet and dress. And again, not to minimize the importance of any of those things, but there is a greater meaning here. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the living God. I will make my home with my people and live among them. And then the wonderful Ellen White quote there in education, uh, that the purpose of the sanctuary system was to lead us to understand God's plan for the human soul for us, for our temple, that we may be again a living temple representing God. And then we reviewed the result of cleansing the sanctuary, the temple. If we understand that we are the temple, then these verses that speak of the blood purifying our conscience, cleansing the inner man of the worshiper, that our conscience is clean. And uh, the incredible words in Malachi, Jesus comes as a refiner, a purifier, to purify the priests, we are those priests. And then again, the uh, incredible uh, interpretation of Ellen White describing Jesus coming into the physical temporal temple. He came into the physical temple to show his desire, his mission, which was to restore the temple of the human soul, to restore our minds, that we are purified and cleansed from the lies that have been told about God. So as we go to the next page here, um, uh, what we're going to go through this afternoon is the details of this whole uh, system. And the Bible really invites us to do so. As we go through each of these pieces of furniture, for example, um, the Bible really gives us a lot of information with which to try to put this together. So uh, let's uh, have prayer as we uh, begin this afternoon. <clears throat> Dear Father, we accept your invitation and the wise words 
of your prophet in these later days of the great significance of the sanctuary system, the great meaning. And uh, we want to understand. Thank you that you invite our inquiries, that you want us to be settled into the truth because the evidence is compelling, like the two men on the Emmaus Road. Uh, We pray that we may be led to the truth, that it will settle in our minds, we'll be convinced, and that like Job, there will be one thing we are convinced of above everything else, and that is the kind of person you are. Amen. Well, now just uh, in this this picture, which uh, I cut and paste here from uh, the Internet, I realized later that it's not completely accurate. For example, the most holy place is a perfect cube. But anyway, um, just as we look at this and we think of, okay, outside the outer court and there's the court inside the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place, um, just as kind of an intuitive thing, uh, where do we want to be in this diagram? Do we want to be in the outer court? We want to be in the most holy place. Don't we? That's that's our destiny, face to face with God, and uh, this whole uh, this whole system is designed to show us how we arrive in that face to face relationship with God. And so we read here about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16: the bull and the goat used for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to take away sin shall be carried outside the camp and burned. Skin, meat, and intestines shall all be burned. And um, we read Paul's interesting parallel to this. Of course, Jesus was killed outside the city by unbelievers. And Paul's words here in Hebrews 13, the Jewish high priests bring the blood of the animals into the most holy place to offer it as a sacrifice for sins. We'll discuss the specifics of that. But the bodies of the animals are burned outside the camp. For this reason, Jesus also died outside the city in order to purify the people. That is the whole point. When you go back and read that whole section in Leviticus 16, the point was to purify the people, to purify the priests. So he died outside the city in order to purify the people from sin with his own blood. And of course, we think about uh, the effect even this had on the heathen um, officer there who saw what had happened and he praised God saying certainly he was a good man. And Jesus came, he lived, he died not only for his own people, all right, but that the Gentiles and everyone may be brought in. Okay, So we are to be drawn in to God by this process. And what's so incredible, of course, is we think about the Shekinah glory. All right, That represents the Trinity. And we remember that uh, the Son, one member of the Trinity, left all right, his incredible place, position in heaven. And where did he go? He became, as we discussed yesterday, down, 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 nothing. He died. And then he goes back into the most holy place, all right, for the purpose of that we should follow him. Okay, we're invited to follow him in. All right, we come to love and trust God through the man Jesus. And in that process, we go through these veils and we're brought close face to face with the Father. All right, so as we go through, we try to understand the symbols. There are a couple of Ellen White quotes that I I felt were helpful here just as a beginning point. First in Christ's Objects Lesson, as a golden treasure, truth had been entrusted to the Hebrew people. The Jewish economy bearing the signature of heaven had been instituted by Christ himself. In types and symbols, the great truths of redemption were veiled. Okay, this is what we're trying to understand. This is what God wants us to understand in this system. All right, and then uh, a few pages later on, the significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shadowed forth in its rites and symbols. And this next sentence uh, is uh, so important to me. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Now, the first day, we had a whole half page on what is the gospel, what is the good news. And again and again, we're told the good news is about a person. Good news is about Jesus. Again and again, the good news is about Jesus. And then we're reminded Jesus is God. Uh, The good news is about the glory of God, the character of God as revealed by Jesus. And I think every understanding we have, every doctrine that we have, if the center of that doctrine is Christ, who is God, and the character of our God, 
it just blows the roof really off of every doctrine and opens up uh, a greater understanding. And I think what she's saying here is, if as we're trying to understand this sanctuary system, we are focused on the main point, which is the kind of person our God is, it will help us uh, a great deal to understand. So through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are opened to the understanding far more than we do. It is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. We are to comprehend the deep things of God. Angels desire to look into the truths that are revealed to the people who with contrite hearts are searching the word of God and praying for greater lengths and breadths and depths and heights of the knowledge which he alone can give. Now, does this sound like God wants us to understand and to explore and to ask questions and to get deeper and deeper. You know, it reminds me, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you friends. Why? Because you understand what I'm doing. God wants us to understand. All right, so I just listed a few of the things here that are uh, listed quite clearly. Um, The lamb, of course, represents Jesus. We know the lid of the covenant box uh, is Jesus. The Shekinah glory is the Godhead. Angels are woven into the curtains and veils. Okay, not much difficulty understanding that. Remember this, we are a spectacle for the onlooking universe. So it makes sense to have those angels there. They needed the message of the cross. They are learning the good news. And the oil um, and the fire uh, represents the Holy Spirit. Now, um, as we go through this, several things are running in parallel. All right, Jesus is the high priest, but we also are the priests. All right, so we are we are following our high priest. We are trying to model after him. But Jesus also represents uh, things such as the lampstand, as we'll talk about. Well, the church is the lampstand. So again, Jesus is our model at every level in this system. Well, let's start uh, with the blood. Certainly, um, is there anything more important in this uh, sanctuary system than the blood? And... Um, Again, are we invited to ask, to inquire, to understand the meaning of these things? Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. This means that every time you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. For if you do not recognize the meaning of the Lord's body when you eat the bread and drink from the cup, you bring judgment on yourself as you eat and drink. All right, we are to ask, what is the meaning of the blood? And Jesus' words here, uh, you will remember he'd done this miracle, he'd fed all these people, and uh, they come back, they want to make him king because of uh, this great miracle. And so he gave them a hard saying in John 6, I can guarantee this truth. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you don't have the source of life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Now, how has Jesus defined eternal life? John 17:3 This is eternal life to know you. Right? Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life. Now the living forever part is a given. All right? That's there. But eternal life, Jesus words, 1 John 5:20, eternal life is to know God. That is the more important aspect of eternal life. And I will bring them back to life on the last day. Okay, good. We get the physical resurrection. My flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood live in me and I live in them. Now, certainly Jesus here is not talking about cannibalism in this this explanation. So what does it mean to eat the flesh and to drink the blood of Jesus? So notice there, I just equated. He equates eating his flesh and drinking his blood with eternal life. And we know eternal life is to know God. And to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is to be one with God. He is in us. We're in him. All right, this whole process. So um, we just look here at another place. The clear words, eternal life means to know you, the only true God. How do we know God? Through the man, Jesus Christ. Okay, and then Paul later in Philippians Yes, everything else is worthless compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's eternal life. I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. All right, so here, to know God is eternal life. To know God is to be one with him. Now, notice in one circumstance, Jesus is talking with people 
who wanted to make him king, he was not uh, wanting to be king of uh, an earthly kingdom, you'll remember. So he gave them this very veiled and hard uh, hard understanding. Remember they said, this is a hard saying. This is a too hard. And his disciples, uh, he even turned to them and said, do you want to go too? And uh, you know they said, well, where will we go? All right, this is a hard saying, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But later on when he's talking with his disciples plainly and clearly right before his death, he says, this is eternal life, to know you. And the greatest desire of Paul was to know Jesus and to become one with him. And so uh, this, uh, this blood, the very real, literal, physical blood of Jesus represents the great truth, the life, the death about our God. And what is it the blood always does? The blood always cleans, cleanses. What is it that breaks down and destroys the lies and the distortions that have been told about the character of our God? It's the truth about our God. He came to reveal the truth so that the lies are completely shattered that Satan has brought. And so when we come to uh, uh, descriptions such as uh, familiar words in Hebrews 9.22, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And another translation, in fact, according to the Hebrew law, according to the Hebrew law, practically every purification, healing takes place by means of blood. And if there's no shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, I saw a patient recently who was a lady... Uh, who was, had been diagnosed with breast cancer about 15 years ago. And uh, she went through and had uh, chemotherapy and radiation treatment. And um, she's been cancer-free. She's been in remission for uh, 15 years. Now, um, would it be better to say that her cancer has been pardoned or her cancer is in remission? She's been healed of the cancer. Now, of course, the cancer can always come back, but she is in a state of healing at this point. And we'll notice that the blood, always the truth about our God, always has the effect of healing, restoring. And we're going to follow this blood all the way in to the most holy place. And we'll notice when this blood is applied, where was it applied? To the horns. All right, that may be significant. So let's, let's now talk about the priests. High priest, of course, is Jesus. We are the daily priests. Was the mission of Jesus, and he declared his mission in John 17:3-6. I glorified you on earth, talking to his Father, by completing down to the last detail what you assigned me to do. Your version probably says I completed your mission, which was what I spelled out your character in detail to the men and women you gave me. Okay, his mission was to reveal the character of God, to destroy the lies that God is a vengeful, selfish liar that Satan has tried to make us believe. Okay, what is our mission as daily priests? Is not our mission the same mission as Jesus' mission? So we read in Malachi 2.7, it is the duty of priests to treat, teach the true knowledge of God. We are to, in our words, our lives, our actions, we are to reveal the character of God. We follow Jesus. He is uh, our pattern uh, that we are following. All right, so we'll follow Jesus, the high priest, and us, the daily priests, uh, through the system. Now, you recall there are three altars, a brazen altar, a golden altar, and the holy place, and then the covenant box. And um, now I'm going to have to convince you of this, but let me just uh, tell you uh, right off what, what I think the meaning here. The bronze altar, all right, in the outer court, represents the unconverted heart and mind. Okay, this is where the lamb was killed, the blood was applied, the fire burned up the internal organs, that blood is then carried in to the holy place. Okay, that's where the golden altar is and we'll describe what is in the holy place. But this, this is the converted heart and mind of the believer. We'll talk about the lampstand and, and the showbread in there and the significance of that. And then finally, the covenant box in the most holy place, uh, I believe represents the sealed mind, the person who is settled into the truth about God, his character, his principles. Now, let's go back to the brazen altar. <clears throat> and we remember, what is it that wins us to God? Kindness of God leads us to repentance. Jesus' life, his death, 
And uh, we read Jesus' words here in John 3, as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the desert in the same way the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. In eternal life, we believe, we trust in God. Um, we have this knowing, intimate relationship with God. For God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him may not die. Now, have there been some believers who've died through the years? But have eternal life. Now, of course, this uh, we're resurrected, but I think the meaning here, a dual meaning is we will not die spiritually, but we will come to life in the sense that we know God. Eternal life begins now. And so if this is the born again kind of experience that we, that we see here as we come to know God through the man Jesus, uh, what would be the opposite then? Eternal life is to know God. What's the opposite spectrum of that? It is to not know God, to believe the lies about God. And what, well, for example, what is the greatest sin? What is the sin that cannot be forgiven? Okay, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I'm sorry, I heard about ten at the same time. You had something over here. To make God to be out to a liar? Okay, I like that. And you had to comment over here. Okay, persistently sliding heaven's invitation. Well, uh, I like those answers. Let me just, and, and we'll get to this later. If you have your Bibles, quickly go through how Jesus defines the role of the Holy Spirit. John 14. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit... And what does your Bible say? What does the Spirit do? Who reveals the truth about who? God. The Spirit who reveals the truth about God. Okay, that's... The, and how do we see the truth about God? Primarily through Jesus. He reveals Jesus. He reveals the truth about God. Uh, go on to John fifteen twenty six. The Helper will come. The Spirit. What does the Spirit do? Who reveals, my version says, the truth about God and who comes from the Father? Okay, John 16, verse 13 and 14. When, however, the Spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God, He will lead you into all the truth. All right, so the ultimate function then of the Holy Spirit. Jesus left, uh, He left and said, I, yet I'm with you always, but He sent the Holy Spirit so that we could be completely settled, reminded of the evidence. He is, the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Jesus, which is to bring us to the truth about God. All right, so we have this incredible experience here, this uh, reborn experience out at the brazen altar through the death of Jesus. And we read in Numbers 21.9, So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who had bitten would look at the bronze snake and be healed. What happens when we're born again? We begin on the road to this process of character reformation and healing to uh, become like our God. Okay, and so I kind of spelled out here uh, what would happen. The head of the household would bring in this perfect lamb for sin. It was examined, found to be spotless. The same man killed the sheep. The blood was drained. Blood was placed on the horns of the brazen altar. Now, just... What do you think of when you think of a horn in the Bible? What is that usually? Power. Daniel in horns, power, pride. That little horn was proud, blasphemous, selfish. All right, these horns get smaller as we follow from this bronze altar to the golden altar. All right, so the truth is applied to our selfish, sinful nature. And the lamb was then placed by the priest on the brazen altar. So again, the lamb is Christ. And the fire that burns that sacrifice is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, remember, brings the truth about God. And so as the organs are burned up, this represents the inner, the old man of selfishness burned up and transformation in character. All right, now what happens when someone is born again? What's the first thing? Baptism, right? We come into the truth, we become baptized. What is right there after the brazen altar? There's the labor. And so the man bringing in the lamb would follow by faith the priest as he would then uh, go in to the holy place. 
All right, and so they would uh, wash there at the laver. And of course, what did Jesus do as he began uh, his ministry? As an example to us, he became baptized and then invites us, follow me, follow me in. All right, and so the words here in John 3, I'm telling you the truth, replied Jesus, that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Same things we're talking about here. Fire, truth, the water, the labor, the Holy Spirit. A person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Now, which birth is more important? Physical birth, spiritual birth, uh, doesn't God desire more than anything else that we are reborn? We have this spiritual rebirth. So this whole process uh, described here in the sanctuary is to lead us to understand. All right, so we enter now into the holy place. Remember, where we want to be? We want to be in the most holy place. All right, but uh, what's, what separates us from the most holy place? Well, there's a veil in between the outer court uh, or the, the court of the sanctuary and the holy place and there's a veil between the holy place and the most holy place. All right, so the veils represent the lies and the distortions. We see, we understand, now we enter in uh, here to the holy place. Remember the verse in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, when the veil, the lies are removed, we begin to reflect our God. Um, and actually, I'm sorry, I have it right here. However, their minds became closed. In fact, to this day, the same veil is still there when they read the Old Testament. It isn't removed because only Christ can remove it. Yet even today, when they read the books of Moses, a veil covers their minds. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, okay, when we're reborn, uh, we enter, we become part of the true church, the veil is taken away. All right, so the holy place then represents the experience of the Christian life, the believer. And so you remember there are three articles there. There's a table of showbread, um, a lampstand, and the golden altar with incense. All right, now first of all, the table of showbread. Uh, it's significant as we, uh, I think we look at this bread and the manna. This bread was made by the priests. All right, who wrote the Bible? but uh, holy men of God, inspired by God. All right, and so this bread was made by the priests, eaten on the Sabbath by the priests, and represents the word of God. Deuteronomy 8.3, the Lord was teaching you that people need more than food to live on. Remember, the whole point here is the spiritual life, not the physical life. They need every word that the Lord has spoken. And so it, what happens is you eat bread. It's internalized. It's ingested. It becomes a part, diffuses throughout the whole body as we read and understand the Bible. So the Word of God becomes part of the person, part of the mind. Uh, we are on, in this process of settling into the truth. All right, the lampstand, um, the light is a witness about God. And in Exodus 25, it's significant that those lights were turned to face outside of the holy place into the outer court. The buds, the branches, and the lampstand are to be a single piece of pure hammered gold. And we'll just compare the bronze altar and we move in and we have all this gold in the holy and most holy place. Make seven lamps for the lampstand and set them up so that they shine toward the front. Now, why do you think those lamps need to shine out of the holy place? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be a light to the world, right? And so make its tongs and trays of pure gold. Use 75 pounds of pure gold to make the lamp stand and all its equipment. And then later tell Aaron that when he puts the seven lamps on the lamp stand, he should place them so that the light shines toward the front. All right, so Jesus, our example, uh, not surprisingly, represents the lamp stand, the real light, which shines on everyone, was coming into the world in John 1.9. And later in John 8, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees again, I am the light of the world, he said. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness. John 9, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, Jesus said in a loud voice, whoever believes in me believes not only in me, but also in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees also him who sent me. I have come into the world as light 
so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. Invitation, come to the light of truth. And the seven lamps, we read in Zechariah 4, the seven lamps are the eyes of God probing the dark corners of the world like searchlights. Okay, so Jesus is the lampstand. Okay, we are following our example, Jesus. So we also are the lampstand. In Jesus' words, Matthew 5, you are like a light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it is put on the lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do. Okay, what happens when people see the good things we do? Well, they praise your Father in heaven. And I think it would be wonderful to sit down next to someone on an airplane and... Uh, they say, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. I've heard about you guys. You have some wonderful things to say about God. How did you come to the conclusion that he's so kind and gracious and uh, even humble? I mean, shouldn't we be known... When someone sees something good about an Adventist, do we want to say, look at us Adventists? I mean, yeah, I think we want people to be drawn to us, but ultimately we want to bring people to God, right? To cause them to see the Father. And that should be our ultimate mission. In Acts 13, for this is the commandment that the Lord has given us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles so that all the world may be saved. Okay, and if there's any doubt that we may be a part of this lampstand in Revelation, we read about Jesus walking among in the holy place. And here is the secret meaning of the seven stars that you see in my right hand and of the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right, so we bring this light to the world. Now, what is the source of the fire? There's oil, right? We'll get back to the Holy Spirit again. And, and now I put these verses in here. I think they're worthwhile reading again. The light that we have about God is because of the truth, the knowledge about his character. Okay, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. The helper will come, the Spirit who reveals the truth about God and who comes from the Father. I will send him to you from the Father and he will speak about me, revealing the truth about God. John 16, when however the Spirit comes, who reveals the truth about God, he will lead you into all the truth. We're really we're not supposed to miss the point here of what the Holy Spirit does. And in John 4, even now the true worshipers are being led by the Spirit to worship the Father according to the truth. And what did we learn the truth about the Father yesterday? The Father himself loves you. These are the ones the Father is seeking to worship him. God is Spirit. And those who worship God must be led by the Spirit to worship him according to the truth. All right, so our source of light to the world at its roots is a true knowledge, the truth about our God. This is the good news. This is what we are to uh, uh, represent to the world. All right, and so you remember this was 75 pounds, solid gold, very ornate with buds, flowers, almonds, and this represents then the character, character of Christ. And remember, as we come to God, what does the Spirit produce? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, and self-control. Right? So we come to the world not only with God is love, God is love, um, but in our actions we reveal that God is love. We don't say God is love and then our actions are in a different way. Our actions are in harmony with the words. Okay, so we have the, the bread, we have the lampstand, all right, so the Christian life, reading the Word of God, meditating on the Word of God, um, being a witness to the world about our God, and of course, prayer, key aspect. So the golden altar with incense is the converted mind in daily prayerful communion with God and with resulting change in character. All right, so in Exodus 30, put this altar outside the curtain, which hangs in front of the covenant box, that is the place where I will meet you. What do we do when we come to God in prayer? We're meeting, we're talking with God. Every morning when Aaron comes to take care of the lamps, he is to burn sweet-smelling incense on it. He must do that same when he lights the lamps in the evening. 
This offering of incense is to continue without interruption for all time to come. And what did Paul say? Pray without ceasing. Once a year, Aaron is to perform the ritual for purifying the altar by putting on its four projections the blood of the animal sacrificed by sin. This is to be done every year for all time to come. This altar is to be completely holy, dedicated to me, the Lord. Okay, so this represents the converted person, but we're still needing that truth about God to purify, to change our own characters. All right, so some verses on this with the incense. In Psalms 141, I pray to you, Lord, please listen when I pray and hurry to help me. Think of my prayer as sweet-smelling incense and think of my lifted hands as an evening sacrifice. And that incense, as it would flow out and into the most holy place and even outside the temple. I mean, it's a witness to other people and it is bringing us closer to God. Be joyful always. Pray at all times. Be thankful in all circumstances. This is what God wants from you in your life in union with Christ Jesus. All right, so over here on the next page. In Isaiah 65, I just had to throw in, remember there's always an ideal and then there is always Satan uh, with a false parallel counter picture. And we read here that I stretched out my hands all day long to a stubborn people, God says. They chose to go the wrong direction. They followed their own plans. These people constantly and openly provoked me. They offered sacrifices in gardens and burnt incense on brick altars. All right, so we can worship the true God on a golden altar or a false God on a brick altar. And finally, this, this, uh, this process, this prayerful life with God, this sweet-smelling incense is something that, I mean, you would smell this everywhere. And so God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ. I mean, how much is this in here? The Holy Spirit, knowledge about God, knowledge about God, the priests, are to reflect the knowledge of God. And the incense, to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. For we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God, which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it's a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. And again, we get back to the unpardonable sin. It's not an arbitrary act on God's part. But if we persistently reject again and again and again the truth about God, we reject it further and further. And God's attempts on every side, but yet we continually say, no, we don't like a God that way. We shut him out again and again. Uh, God is left with the choice again of becoming the puppet master, now pulling our strings against our will, or he will give us the freedom to go our own way. And when he lets us go, we freely go our own way. What else can he do? All right, that's why someone like Manasseh, I mean, a mass killer in the Old Testament, he could still be one to God because he apparently there was still some shred in there that was willing to respond. Okay, so the ultimate sin is to completely and totally reject the truth about God. All right, so we've gone from the outer court. We've gone through the brazen altar, the labor, the baptism into the holy place, the life of the believer, prayer, reading the Bible, a witness to others, but there's still one veil that separates us from the most holy place. Now, what happened when Jesus died? That veil was ripped. All right, now in, in everything that I have just described, what would be the significance then of that veil being ripped? When was the greatest revelation ever about the character and the principle of our God? It was at the cross. We see clearly now that was God. And uh, this experience uh, at the cross, when we really understand what went on there and what our God did, it brings us closer to him through the veil. And so in Hebrews 9, Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Boldly, because of the blood of Jesus blood because of the truth about God that Jesus revealed. This is the new life-giving way that Christ has opened up for us through the sacred curtain by means of his death for us. 
And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's people, let us go right into the presence of God with true hearts fully trusting him. For our evil consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, healed, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Now, some versions you know, suggest that the veil was the body of Christ, but the body of Christ is the way through the veil. All right, The body of Christ is what explodes and destroys the lies and the distortions about God. And we enter in and see him as he is, that the Father himself loves us. So again, in Hebrews 4, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, who is just like Jesus. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace. All right, so we enter in now to the most holy place. And I think it may be significant that that most holy place was a perfect cube. Do we have other perfect cubes in the Bible? Well, the most holy place in the two Old Testament uh, in the wilderness in Solomon's temple and the new Jerusalem, the bride, that's us coming down. The city was square. It was as wide as it was long. He measured the city with its sticks. It was 12,000 stadia long. Its length, width, and height were the same. All right, The character of the person settled into the truth about God, a perfect cube. Now, in the covenant box, as I've said, uh, representing one settled into the truth about God. Remember, Ellen White describes uh, this is what God is waiting for. Those who are sealed in their forehead. Uh, there were three things. Okay, The first is the manna. Now, remember we had the bread in the holy place made by the priests, the Bible ingested uh, the word of God. Now, the manna, you remember, came was made in heaven, came straight from heaven. And so uh, Jesus in his words here in John 6, I'm telling you the truth, Jesus said, what Moses gave you was not the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread that God gives is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they asked him, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. Jesus is the manna. Jesus told them, I'm telling you the truth. He who believes has eternal life. What is eternal life? Eternal life is to know God. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. But the bread that comes down from heaven is of such a kind that whoever eats it will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If you eat this bread, you will live forever. All right, We internalize, ingest the life, the character of Jesus becomes a part of us, we will enter into this eternal life experience. The bread that I will give you is my flesh, which I give so that the world may live. The living Father sent me, and because of him I live also. In the same way, whoever eats me will live because of me. This then is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread your ancestors ate, but then later died. Those who eat this bread will live forever. What gives life is God's spirit who reveals the truth about God. Human power is of no use at all. The words I have spoken to you bring God's life-giving spirit. And remember the key words of Jesus. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so uh, the symbolism here of the manna in the covenant box is the character of Jesus internalized in the person settled into the truth about God. We have the mind of Christ. And in Ephesians 3.19, yes, may you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known, and so be completely filled with the very nature of God. Okay, we're, we're coming closer to the ideal um, in this whole system. All right, so we have the manna. Next is Aaron's rod with almonds and flowers. And you remember the story of how uh, this, red, uh, this rod budded. Remember, there was a complete chaos and rebellion. And this rod went in and it blossomed as a sign of who the true priest was. Okay, so in number 17, write each man's name on his stick and then write Aaron's name on the stick representing Levi. The next day when Moses went into the tent, he saw that Aaron's stick representing the tribe of Levi, had sprouted. It had buttoned, budded, blossomed, and produced ripe almonds. All right, this, these are the true priests. 
Okay, remember, who are the true priests? The true believers? We are the priests of God. We read this morning in Malachi that Jesus' mission was to purify the priests. And this is such an important verse. Let's read it again. This, I put it in a different version this time just to make it uh, a little bit different. Behold, I send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Messiah, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger or angel of the covenant whom you desire. Behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. That is to purify, to cleanse. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the priests, the sons of Levi, and refine them like gold and silver and they may offer to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Okay, and so the stick here representing the priests and the blossoming, again, would uh, kind of like the lampstand, would represent the character, character of Christ in his people. And also, uh, I think perhaps uh, reminiscent of the description here in Zechariah 3, again, in this great controversy, in another vision, the Lord showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. And there beside Joshua stood Satan, ready to bring an accusation against him, the angel of the Lord said to Satan, May the Lord condemn you, Satan. May the Lord who loves Jerusalem condemn you. This man is like a stick snatched from the fire. Joshua was standing there wearing filthy clothes. The angel said to his heavenly attendants, Take away the filthy clothes this man is wearing. Then he said to Joshua, I have taken away your sin and will give you new clothes to wear. And what do the new clothes represent? The robe of righteousness. Again, the character of God uh, reflected in his true people, the priests, the Levites. Okay, so we have the manna. We have the, the rod with almonds and flowers. And then finally, I think uh, most significant of all, um, the Ten Commandments. Why are those Ten Commandments in the covenant box? <clears throat> well, the Lord says, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them will have to teach a neighbor to know the Lord because all will know me from the least to the greatest. Notice the parallel here between the law written on the heart. Okay, what is the parallel along with that? They know God. Okay, so the law is on the heart. I will forgive their sins. I'll no longer remember their wrongs. I, the Lord, have spoken. This, this point is so repetitious in the Bible. In Ezekiel 11, I will give them a new heart and a new mind. I will take away their stubborn heart of stone and give them an obedient heart. Then they will keep my laws because they're internalized and faithfully obey all my commands. They will be my people and I will be their God. And later in Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean from all your idols, false picture of God and everything else that has defiled you. I will give you a new heart and a new mind. I will take away your stubborn heart of stone and give you an obedient heart. I will put my spirit in you and will see to it that you follow my laws and keep all the commands I have given you. And I think this again and again, the law written on the heart, written on the heart, well, the mind, right, is where we do our thinking, uh, is an invitation to remind us of these Ten Commandments in the covenant box. Now, along with that, with this new covenant, there is much talk about blood. And let's remember how we tried to describe uh, what the blood is. What happens as this blood comes in to the most holy place? And let's first remind what did the blood mean in the Old Testament system? In Exodus 24, then he took the book of the covenant in which the Lord's commands were written and read it aloud to the people. They said, we will obey the Lord and do everything that he has commanded. Then Moses took the blood in the bowls and threw it on the people. He said, this is the blood that seals the covenant which the Lord made with you when he gave all these commands. 
And when we read in Leviticus 16, what was the point of this day of atonement? Uh, look, at, look at what it was supposed to accomplish. Leviticus 16, 16. In this way, he will perform the ritual to purify the most holy place from the uncleanness of the people of Israel and from all their sins. And I'm sorry, I don't have the verse here, but it continues on in Leviticus 16. On the tenth day of the seventh month, the Israelites and the foreigners living among them must fast and must not do any work. This was to afflict oneself. On that day, the ritual is to be performed to purify them, to heal them from all their sins so that they will be ritually clean. The high priest, properly ordained and consecrated to succeed his father, is to perform the ritual of purification. He shall put on the priestly garments and perform the ritual to purify the most holy place, the rest of the tent of the Lord's presence, the altar, the priests, that's you and I, and all the people of the community. Okay, this was what happened on this Day of Atonement. There was a heal it was to point towards a healing, a restoration. Alright, so uh, in Hebrews 9 9, this was a symbol for the time then present when gifts and sacrifices were offered that could not perfect the conscience, the mind of the worshiper. Alright, but now we have a new covenant. And let's read about that. In Matthew 26, Jesus, of course, uh, who understood this better? And so he wanted to remind his disciples, what is the meaning of this? And so in Matthew 26, then he took a cup, gave thanks to God and gave it to them. Drink it, all of you, he said. This is my blood, which seals God's covenant. And then uh, again, coming back to Hebrews 9, since this is true, how much more is accomplished by the blood of Christ? Through the eternal spirit, he offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to God. His blood will purify. Blood, truth always purifies our consciences, our mind from useless rituals so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the one who arranges a new covenant so that those who have been called by God may receive eternal blessings that God has promised. Okay, and just moving on a few verses here into Hebrews 10. Because Jesus Christ did what God wanted him to do, we are all purified from sin by the offering that he made of his own body once and for all. With one sacrifice then, he has made perfect forever those who are purified from sin. And the Holy Spirit also gives us his witness. First, he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them in the days to come, says the Lord. What's the point of the new covenant? I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Again, that's why those Ten Commandments are there. So what happens if we live in this way? Well, but if we live in the light just as He is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from every sin. And then there are a number of verses here. Um, I know I'm just giving you a lot of text, but I feel like uh, in a short time, I'm, I'm trying to make my case here for, for what I think is, is going on. That You have these and you can read through these, but the next few verses um, point to the ideal, that when we have the law written on their heart, and remember the law is a reflection of the character of God. Uh, Ellen White's words, it is a transcript of his character. The law is to point to love God and to love neighbor. And these verses, I read them yesterday, um, just in First John, uh, they're, they're so meaningful. And, and if some of you are here today that weren't here yesterday, um, I think we should make the point again that this change of character can be viewed as um, a, a real turnoff if it is seen as a daunting command, God pointing the finger, uh, you must be perfect. You must be perfect. But the point that, that I've tried to make is that it is a natural response that as we turn to God that there is a change in our character. Uh, it's unavoidable that uh, we do become like the God we love, worship, and admire. All right, so in this process, as we are developing a Christ-like character uh, represented by those three things in the covenant box, we have to remember, now, we are very close to God, are we not? The Shekinah glory, the covenant box, what is in between? But the lid, okay, three inches of gold. And we want to come entirely face to face with God. So what does the lid 
represent. And I'll put it here in the most difficult, um, well, in, in, in the King James Version, um, and then, then we'll see if we can gain some understanding about the lid. King James puts it, this, puts it this way, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, the, uh, the Greek word, which the King James Committee here translated as propitiation, the Greek word is helisterion, which is very literally the lid. All right, so Jesus is the lid. And so the question then becomes, what does the lid represent? Um, Luther, of course, as he did his uh, translation, uh, chose the, the German word uh, Gnadenstuhl, which Tyndale, uh, which with the meaning is the mercy seat. All right, what is the mercy seat? What happened at the lid? Well, it can be viewed in a couple ways. The word propitiation, of course, may imply, uh, may have a certain implication, um, but, but uh, let, let's see if we can understand this. It, it can be seen that Christ was reconciling the Father to us, that Christ is, in a sense, shielding us from the Father, that by his act, the Father is no longer angry with us. Is that the reality? And I have to read these verses again. Who is reconciled to who by the life and death of Jesus? Notice that we were God's enemies, but he made us his friends through the death of his son. Now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? Remember, salvation, you hear the word salve in there, healing. But that is not all. We rejoice because of what God has done through our Lord Jesus Christ, who has now made us God's friends. We were the problem all along. We've been the problem. We have been the enemies. He came to bring us back to a different relationship with God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is done by God, who through Christ changed us from enemies into his friends and gave us the task of making others his friends also. Our message is that God was making all human beings his friends through Christ. God did not keep an account of their sins, and he has given us the message which tells how he makes them his friends. Here we are then speaking for God as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf. Let God change you from enemies into his friends. So in this process, if we are here, the, the covenant box, the Shekinah glory, the lid, uh, is not the function here, reconciliation, at one moment, to bring us to God, face to face. And so just some other uh, versions of this, the God's Word version, God showed that Christ is the throne of mercy where God's approval is given through faith in Christ's blood. And Christ, God appointed him as a sacrifice for reconciliation through faith by the shedding of his blood. And finally, God presented Jesus as the way and means of restoration through trust established by the evidence of God's character revealed when Christ died. I think that is the ultimate meaning uh, that we are to see here in the lid as we are brought face to face with our God. And I thought just to finish, uh, because I know this passage in Romans is a difficult one, I've tried to make the point here. Just if we look at the word, hilasterion, we can come to this meaning. But I think another way is if we take the whole passage and we try to see what point is Paul making as he describes this. And so um, try to listen very carefully here as I read uh, this passage from today's English version or the Good News Bible. And what is the main point? that Paul is trying to make here as he builds up and he describes uh, what happened here at the lid. For no one is put right in God's sight by doing what the law requires. What the law does is to make us know that we have sinned. But now God's way of putting people right with himself, what is his way of putting people right with himself? That's what we're asking. Has been revealed. It has nothing to do with the law even though the law of Moses and the prophets gave their witness to it. God puts people right through their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's worthwhile pointing out here that in the Greek, same word, faith, believe, trust, there is one word for that. Through their faith, through their trust in Jesus Christ. God does this to all who believe, all who trust in Christ. 
because there is no difference at all. Everyone has sinned and is far away from God's saving presence. But by the free gift of God's grace, all are put right through him, through Christ Jesus, who sets them free. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. God offered him so that by his blood, he should become, okay, here's what they translated here as the lid, the means by which people's sins are forgiven through their faith, through their trust in him. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. That's why he did this. In the past, he was patient and overlooked people's sins. But in the present time, he deals with their sins in order to demonstrate his righteousness. In this way, God shows that he himself is righteous. Three times there. And that he puts everyone right who believes, who trusts in Jesus. What then can we boast about? Nothing. And what is the reason for this? Is it that we obey the law? No, but that we believe, we trust. For we conclude that a person is put right with God only through faith, trust, and not by doing what the law commands. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Of course he is. God is one. And he will put the Jews right with himself on the basis of their faith, their trust. And will put the Gentiles right through their faith, through their trust. Does this mean that by this faith we do away with the law? No, not at all. Instead, we uphold the law. And we want that law written on our hearts. So what is the point of this passage that Paul is making? So repetitious. I listed here six times. What is God's way of putting people right with himself? He puts them right through trust. The thief on the cross trusted the one next to him. Verse 22, God puts people right through their trust. God does this to all who trust. In the same way, God shows that he himself is righteous. He puts everyone right who trusts in Jesus. What can we boast about? Nothing. What is the reason for this? It is that we obey the law. Know that we believe. Trust. Okay, again and again. This is the point. We're put right with God through our trust. Now, how do we come to trust God? Through the revelation of God. Through the life and the death of Jesus. Okay, so the point here in this whole context of the lid is that we are to be reconciled, brought back to God in trust. So I think whether we look at the word itself or in the whole context of the passage, Paul's point is that we are brought into union, put right, reconciled with God through trust. That was the purpose of Jesus. Jesus represents the lid. We are brought into union with our God. And three times in those two verses, right after describing the lid, Paul describes why Jesus came, why Jesus died. God did this in order to demonstrate that he is righteous. He has been accused of being an untrustworthy liar. God came in the flesh to demonstrate his righteousness in order to demonstrate his righteousness. God shows that he himself is righteous. It's a character that uh, Jesus was revealing about the Father. And so as we come to all of this, and I like this meaning, it builds up and gets more and more beautiful, uh, but the point here is that eventually uh, the need for these uh, symbols, and these are symbols to bring us to a great meaning, that there will be at some point no need for symbols. In Jeremiah 3, then you will be, when you become as numerous in that land, what land would that be? People will no longer talk about my covenant box. They will no longer think about it or remember it. They will not even need it, nor will they make another one. When that time comes, Jerusalem will be called the throne of the Lord and all nations will gather there to worship me. They will no longer do what their stubborn and evil hearts tell them. That sounds like the law written on the heart. And the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice speaking from the throne now God's home is with people. He will live with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them. He will be their God. He will wipe away all tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief or crying or pain. The old things have disappeared. Okay, and later on, no temple could be seen in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God ultimate glory of God, his character illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. All right, so that 
I think gets to the whole point. Now, what is our mission here? Do we believe that there is a significant message that we have to give to the world? And the first day that uh, we met together, uh, I read this uh, quote. I wish I had put it in the handout here, but listen to the words, which is the final message to this world. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating its influence and saving in its power. Okay, what is that message? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is the revelation of his character of love. And I, I think um, I'd like all of us just to be a part of moving this great message about our God forward. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Father, truly in many and various ways, you have done everything possible, I think, as we have discussed this week, from the beginning of this rebellion through the difficult Old Testament times and then in amazement that the God of infinite, unapproachable light would become a human baby and would grow up and live in a place like Nazareth and would eventually die such a horrible death. But... We, as we think about you, your person, your character, as you revealed in your life, surely we have such good things to say about you. And we pray that this message about you, your character, that it will go throughout the world, both in our words, but also in our actions, as we love our neighbor, as we love ourselves. Thank you, God. Amen.